0: This is a Federal News Network podcast.
1: It's been six months since the Thrift Savings Plan participants experienced a major update in the online My Account platform. The Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board, the agency in charge of the TSP, launched its Converge Update, as they called it, back on June 1st. And it might be an understatement to say the transition was rocky. But the board says it's made lots of improvements and learned a few lessons since then. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman spoke with the director of the board's external affairs, Kim Weaver.
0: Our ability to handle the call volume in June and July was challenging, to say the least. There's been a significant improvement. We are now able to answer calls in generally less than 20 seconds And the overall customer satisfaction is roughly 85, 86 percent with the service at the call centers now. That I think you can say is a dramatic improvement over June and July when we couldn't say the same thing.
2: Kind of going back to that time period again, so June, July, when it was first rolled out, part of the initial problem was also just having to create or set up a new account that caused a lot of frustration and confusion, which then led to these high call volumes at the call center. So for you or for the board, what were some of the takeaways or lessons learned? And, you know, is there anything that you'll keep in mind if if anything like that comes up again? The issues caused
0: by having to create your new account was that the security settings were set at such a level that it caused extreme difficulty for people trying to set up their new account and you have tiers of challenges when you're you're doing these kinds of things and almost everyone under the settings then were having to escalate to the additional tiers which as you said then led to more calls, which then led to less calls being answered. So it was a a very bad uh, downward spiral there. So we were able to learn from that experience in how to tweak the security settings so that people who should have access to their accounts were getting access to the accounts, but that bad actors weren't. And so now roughly 90 to 91 percent of participants are able to access their account, set up their account, log in without having to escalate up to the call center. And that's about what we want, because if 100 percent were getting through, then we would be pretty sure bad actors were getting through. So it, it's a delicate balance. But I think what we've learned over the last six months is how to fine tune those settings.
2: Aside from just that, there were a lot of new changes with the transition to the new record keeper. So the My Account platform looks entirely different once you log in, there's a new app, there's a lot of new stuff going on. Over the course of the six months or even up to more recently, what has been the response or feedback that you've gotten from participants about their experience using the new system? Lately, roughly 89%, almost 90%,
0: of participants' interactions with the TSP are self-service. So they're logging into their My Account on the web, they're using the mobile app, or they're using the new virtual assistant, which is called Ava. And so that means that people are able to do the transactions that they wanna do on their own time. And so we are seeing people taking advantage of that more and more. More of the transactions are now able to be done completely online.
2: There are a lot of changes where the goal is to make things easier or just fit with a more digital modern world. But I'd still hear occasionally people who have concerns with the way that my account looks or functions. So for example, a couple participants have reached out to me to say they don't like the fact that you can't see historical data going back more than 10 years. So can you explain why that decision was made? And if people want to access that data, is there a place where it's still available?
0: We looked at how many people actually looked at historical data on the previous record-keeping platform, and it just wasn't that many people. And moving over all those records and keeping them as live data is expensive and also serves as a security risk, right? Because there's that much more data that we're having to keep live and protect. And so what is available online now is year-end balances going back 10 years as you said if participants need their historical statements if they want their annual statement from 2015 they can call the call center and ask that it be mailed to them
2: Another thing that I will occasionally hear from participants is that in the way the new My Account interface looks or is designed, it can be a little bit difficult to navigate or find the right information that they're looking for. Is it something where you would consider feedback from participants who might be struggling or is there a way to help them navigate it a little bit better?
0: We are measuring customer satisfaction on all the channels. And so we've already made changes to the My Account to address that. We will continue to make tweaks as we see that people are like, if you just did this, it would be easier or that sort of thing. Getting used to any new system is not easy. Like even in your grocery store, they move stuff and you're like, where is the soup? You know, I don't want to diminish anyone's frustration because it is a huge frustration when you have to deal with that sort of thing. But we are doing our best to try and respond to people's Feedback so that we can make it easier for them.
2: Do you have any final reflections, lessons learned about the transition? Any message that you want to leave TSP participants with?
0: I want participants to know the contractor apologized. We were certainly very apologetic. The first few months were not what any of us wanted for that transition, but it has improved. We are processing loans. We're processing withdrawals. We know there are a small subset of participants who are still having trouble, and we are focused on figuring out what's causing that, if there's a root cause, and trying to correct it so people don't have those problems going forward.
1: Kim Weaver, Director of External Affairs at the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board, speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com.
3: Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University, and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director Sasha welcome
1: Jane thanks so much for having me it's a pleasure
3: can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you and then and, and how did what does that look like
1: sure absolutely So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways.
3: Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took pr- um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service so it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that?
1: Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. It. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government and those kind of organizations together because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through.
3: Yeah, We, we actually work with a, a number of those too and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years?
1: Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way, But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, And so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues.
3: And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you.
1: Well, I wish I wish and it was it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long. Right. So we we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those you know sort of blue sky ideas. As leaders, we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from those stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense.
3: Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started?
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to, Take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table, and that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships and trust. Other times I needed to learn to tune it up, right to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave, and we left the meeting and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point I don't even remember what the point was now and he stopped in the hall and said, "Why didn't you say that in the meeting?" You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now. Now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so, well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all.
3: Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is
1: I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said... Uh, isn't that for old people? (laughs) I said, uh, (laughs) um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And, diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job.
3: And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service.
1: And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that too. But there's there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other
3: career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha. And thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time.